Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. We are back with Clark Neely, Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. You know, Bob Levy, a friend of yours, friend of mine, former chairman of the Cato Board, was a very good mentor to me. And he's always said that his view of the Constitution and Bill of Rights was that of a textualist. That is, the written words as defined by a dictionary of that time constituted the law of the land. So I want to uh, ask you, I mean, how does the federal government get away with taking actions that are in direct contradiction to what is written in the Constitution? A real challenge when it comes to constitutional law is that the document itself has to be short enough that people will actually read it. Otherwise, you end up with something like the Constitution of the state of Alabama, which is, I believe, one of the longest ones in the world. It's over 100,000 words, and there's probably not more than four people in the entire world who've actually read the Alabama Constitution. So what connection can anybody really have with that? The answer is none. By contrast, the U.S. Constitution is the shortest constitution um, in the world, and um, or at least of, of any major uh, country in the world. And so you get the benefit that people can actually read it and know what's in it, but it necessarily has to speak in many uh, cases in rather open-ended terms. So on the one hand, we'll get something quite specific, like the provision that says that you have to be at least 35 years old to be president. I think that's quite clear. And I don't think we're even going to have problems interpreting that when we, if we begin colonizing other planets. We're going to know that's 35 Earth years. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got rather open-ended terminology like due process, which we've already discussed, um, unreasonable searches and seizures, um, and even things like uh, the 14th Amendment's protection against laws that in, infringe the privileges or immunities of, of citizens of the United States. Reasonable people can disagree about what each and every one of those terms mean. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is up for grabs. It simply means uh, that the idea that, that, that states must not infringe your privileges or immunities is not as specific and clear as the provision that says you have to be 35 years old to be president. And that's, you know, it's, so it's an inherent um, uh, challenge of constitutional law that it's going to sometimes speak in these fairly open-ended, value-laden terms um, and then you have to have some mechanism uh, for fleshing those out and interpreting what exactly do they mean in the context of a particular case. Um, and that's where we get uh, the judiciary and what we call judicial uh, interpretive doctrine, where essentially the court takes a provision of the Constitution that may be somewhat subjective or open-ended, like the prohibition against unreasonable searches, and answers that in the context of a specific case, such as, for example, an interesting case um, from about 20 years ago called Kylo, K-Y-L-L-O, where the question was whether police driving by your house 
um, with an infrared device that enables them to see inside and whether they're unusual heat sources inside your home does or does not constitute an unlawful search in violation of the Fourth Amendment. The answer to that question, according to the Supreme Court in that case, was yes. I think they got that right. But of course, there was no such technology in the founding era. And so that requires what we call construction. The court necessarily has to construe the provisions of the Fourth Amendment prohibiting unreasonable searches and seizures to update them and decide whether they apply to a specific fact pattern that could never have been contemplated during the founding era. And that's what a lot of constitutional interpretation and construction involves. I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of that occurred uh, during FDR's presidency, uh, and a lot of it had to do with the Commerce Clause, of course. So that was interpretation of that com- or the Commerce Clause just expanded to include absolutely almost anything, such as Wickard versus Fillmore uh, and, and several others. So uh, that, to me, is it created a problem for us because if you look at the word – Regulation, the re- word regulation back in colonial times when the document was written did not mean go and make rules and laws and things like that and, and restrict things. It said it was supposed to make things work better. That's what regulation meant at that time. But obviously, uh, you know, FDR was able to bully the court into uh, deciding things according to his political agenda. So, um, so we've talked about that, and I want to bring I want to bring to you a couple of of Article One, Section One of the Constitution says all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. I mean that's pretty clear, and of course we've been talking about Amendments Four, Five, and Six of the Bill of Rights, which really have some pretty specific wording in it about the rights. There are some vague areas. So my question to you is, when decisions of the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court alter or annul legislation or directly contradict the words of the Constitution, are not those judges illegally amending the Constitution? I think the short answer is yes, uh, but of course people are going to disagree about what constitutes an impermissible sort of judicial amendment of the language of the Constitution versus a permissible construction or interpretation of open-ended language. Um, so, so for example, if somebody wanted to run for president um, who was 30 years old and uh, uh, was able to, to, you know, get a majority of the electoral uh, uh, votes, that person that election would be invalid. That person was not eligible to run for president. Um, I personally think that would be what we call a justiciable issue, meaning the courts can get involved, they can decide the case, and they can hold that that person is not eligible to be president. But if you had a judiciary that said, well, you know, um, maybe in, you know, the late 18 or late 1700s, it seemed like a bad idea to have really young people be president. But, you know, we now have more perspective. And so we're just going to say this is OK. That, I think, would be a really clear example of judiciary effectively amending the Constitution on the basis of some, you know, policy judgment that they think they have a better perspective uh, than the, the, you know, sort of the drafters of the Constitution. Um, by contrast, uh, there are other you know, decisions that some people agree with and some people disagree with. So I personally think that the uh, that Obamacare and specifically the provision in Obamacare that requires everybody to purchase government approved health insurance or pay a penalty. Uh, I don't see any power enumerated power in the text of the Constitution that would support that legislation. But of course, the Supreme Court disagreed and upheld 
that provision, um, somewhat surprisingly, not on the basis of the Commerce Clause, which is what you alluded to before and tends to be the sort of the font of all desired powers that the federal government may have, but instead on uh, an interpretation of the federal government's taxing power. Um, I think reasonable people can disagree about that. Um, I think there is a better argument to be made. I think it is the one that says that the Congress had no authority uh, to, in effect, take over nationalized health care. Um, but that's the real trick is to, you know, come up with a principled line between the between a good faith interpretation of the Constitution that you just happen to disagree with versus um, a, you know, sort of a judicial interpretation that is so clearly lacking in any reasonable uh, uh, support or coherence that it really does amount to a judicial amendment of the Constitution. And I do think that happens from time to time. Maybe the clearest example would be, or a very clear example that Bob Levy has written about. There's a provision in the text of the Constitution um, that says that the states may not impair the obligations of contracts. The primary impetus for that was to create a situation, was to ensure that when borrowers who almost always tend to outnumber lenders, get really behind, maybe because of a Great Depression or this actually happened during the American Revolution when farmers were away fighting in the war and got behind on their mortgage payments for their farms. There will be a tendency, and this goes all the way back to classical times, there will be a tendency for all the borrowers to get together and pass some legislation saying, hey, you know, it'd be great if we didn't have to pay back our loans. That's absolutely a disaster, of course, for, for, for an economy, because that's going to basically nobody's going to be willing to lend money after a while. So you don't want that to be able to happen. That was written into the text of the Constitution, the prohibition against states impairing the obligations of contracts. And it was done for exactly the situation that I just described prevent a situation where there are economic downturn, borrowers get together and try to essentially vote themselves out of their, their debts. Well, guess what? That came up in the Great Depression in the 1930s, and that is exactly what happened. And in a case out of Minnesota called Blaisdell, uh, where voters had done exactly like what I described, borrowers got together, passed legislation that, that altered the terms of their mortgages, that they owed the banks for their farms, and the Supreme Court said, you know what? It's an emergency. It's fine. That is, I think, a very clear example of the Supreme Court reading out of the Constitution a textual provision that is relatively unambiguous and was very clearly written to address precisely that situation. And the court just brushed it aside. Does that have any relation to the forgiveness of college loans in our current times? That's a fascinating question. Um, so by its text, the um, the provision that we were just discussing only uh, forbids states from, inter from inter uh, interfering uh, or impairing the obligations of contracts. So if we're going to be strict textualists, um, then we have to acknowledge that it does not speak to the federal government. Now, I think there are other, very clearly, there are other constitutional concerns that are raised by President Biden's attempt to forgive uh, student loans. Um, and in fact, uh, the Cato Institute, where I work, is a plaintiff in a case uh, challenging uh, that uh, uh, policy. Uh, and as I'm sure you know, there are a number of cases that have been filed in two of them, one out of Texas and one out of Missouri, um, have actually gotten up uh, to the Supreme Court and will be argued uh, in February. Um, and I think virtually everybody uh, agrees that if the Supreme Court finds that one or more of the plaintiffs in those cases has standing to challenge that policy, which I think is, is likely to be the case, then probably that uh, uh, program or that attempt to forgive student loans will be struck down by the Supreme Court. There are a number of reasons why it was improper. Um, so my, my, my gut is that if I were a betting man, which I occasionally am, I would say that there's probably at least a 75 or 80 percent chance that uh, uh, President Biden will not be permitted by the Supreme Court to try to forgive student loans. 
You know, we talk about the the court system changing the Constitution. Of course, one of the amendments which has been a under constant attack is the Second Amendment. And um, I always used to say that people, I would ask them, I said, "What are the four? What what are the four most important words in the Second Amendment?" And they wouldn't know exactly. And I would say, "Shall not be infringed." And what's the most important part of the of the Second Amendment? Is the period at the end of those four words, because it shall not be infringed except on Tuesday or, or whatever else you want. But yet, look at all of the restrictions all over the place on uh, keeping and bearing arms, uh, which seem not to be uh, either challenged enough. And I know the Cato Institute was part of the Heller case. I know that. Uh, very successful. And also the Chicago case. But... Uh, Nevertheless, it's a constant barrage of assault on the Second Amendment, and uh, sometimes it's, it seems hard to get the courts uh, to s- understand that shall not be infringed, uh, period, uh, is a valid reason, a reading of that amendment. Yeah, no, I agree. Listen, Bob Levy and I were the two people who brought the Heller case uh, to the Supreme Court, along with Alan Gura, who joined the case later. Um I will say this. Uh, there are a couple of challenges here. First is the um, somewhat uh, problematic wording of the Second Amendment. Uh, as you know, it begins with a so-called prefatory clause that says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, those kinds of provisions, so-called prefatory clauses that tell you, that essentially sort of give you some context for what follows, those were quite common at the founding era. And Without exception, they were never given any significant weight. You know, if the Second Amendment had begun with the terms, uh, you know, uh, polar bears being a, a real threat to the ability of people to participate in democracy, the right of the people, people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. If polar bears became extinct, that wouldn't change anything. We, the four operative words that you focused on, shall not be infringed, would still be the operative provision, and they would have just as much meaning um, as they did in an era when there were polar bears or whatever, right? So, so that's one problem, though, is that some people do um, tend to um, tr- you know, essentially try to persuade everybody to not even pay attention to how these prefatory clauses were interpreted back in the day and how they are still interpreted today. Another example, by the way, in the text of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, um, is the so-called intellectual property clause. It's the, it's the one that empowers the federal government to grant uh, patents, trademarks, and copyrights. And it also has a prefatory clause that says, in essence, uh, to promote the useful arts and sciences Congress shall have the ability to to protect intellectual property, um, but nobody has to prove to the you know to the copyright office that a given poem or you know a, a given episode of uh, uh, I don't know uh, you know Beavis and Butthead is going to actually promote the useful arts and sciences. So again, that's an example of how we've never gotten hung up on prefatory clauses, and it's only when opponents of the right to keep and bear arms want to try to come up with some way of arguing that the Constitution doesn't protect it that they. Uh, suggest or insist upon this highly idiosyncratic way of treating a prefatory clause where alone among all the prefatory clauses in the Constitution and at the founding era, this one is going to uh, control the meaning of the of the Second Amendment. Of course, the Supreme Court rejected that in Heller, rejected it again in McDonald two years later, and again rejected it in a case called Bruin just this past summer. So I think that ship has sailed, or maybe a better way to put it is that that door is closed. Um, the other problem, though, and this is more challenging, I think, and good people of good faith really can disagree about this, is that, um, you know, no constitutional right is completely unlimited. So Congress shall make no law 
um, infringing the freedom of speech, but yet we can still have defamation laws, right? We can still have laws against disclosing um, the identity of secret agents working abroad and things like that. So there have to be limits, even when the Constitution appears to speak in unqualified terms. And I think we can see how necessarily that must be true with respect to the Second Amendment. Somebody who has been determined by a competent court to be insane probably should not be able to assert a Second Amendment right to own an assault weapon. Similarly, nobody, I think, should be able to assert a Second Amendment right to own nuclear weapons. That's That would be another example of something where, you know, all rights have limits. The question is, what are those limits? They should be ascertained in good faith. Often that doesn't happen, but it doesn't relieve us, relieve us of the obligation to always sort of recognize that the Constitution, um, while it speaks in broad and sometimes categorical terms, all rights must necessarily have limits, and, and sometimes it can be very challenging to identify in good faith where those boundaries must be. Well, you, you raised some really good points there, and, uh, and, and I would say that, uh, for instance, telling the names of secret agents around the world is a little bit different than hate speech. Uh, because, yes, your people's lives, when you are talking about endangering the life and freedom of individuals, I mean, I think that's a very important point that you've got to protect that. But when it comes to free speech, um, you know, I always remember what I was told by my parents multiple times, and that is sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And I have a problem with uh, hate speech and, and all that kind of stuff because no one is forced by the First Amendment to listen to what you say. You do not have to listen. And if you don't like what you hear, pick yourself up and go somewhere else. So um, that that is a very troubling part uh, of the current situation, especially with all the woke uh, culture stuff going on now, is that – uh, you virtually can't say anything to anybody. And I don't think that's right. I mean, you know. Well, okay, so let's be clear on this. Now, the Supreme Court actually, to its credit, has been pretty good on uh, free expression under the First Amendment. And uh, hate speech is constitutionally protected unless it can be shown that it was speech that was um, reasonably calculated to imminent violence, to, to you know, like if you stand up in front of a bunch of people and say, hey, let's go lynch that person, that is not protected speech. Um, that being said, there is certainly a gray area where the, I think the courts have been less vigilant than they ought to be in two areas in particular. One, um, whether you can be punished more severely um, for, you know, let's say engaging in conduct that is itself punishable, trespassing on somebody's property in order to, to burn a cross in front of their front door. You can be prosecuted for that because you're trespassing. Now, can you be punished more severely because of the message that you were trying to send? That's a more open question and a more difficult one. Um, and the courts have not always been great on that. Um, another area where I think I'm personally very concerned as a libertarian um, is that some judges uh, have decided apparently that if a company is big enough um, and has engaged in conduct that that judge doesn't care for, um, then that company can lose its First Amendment rights. Some people don't like the idea that corporations have First Amendment rights, and I could not reject that more emphatically. Um, look. I don't always love what the New York Times has to say, but I'm glad that they're able to say it without government censorship. And the same thing, uh, you know, for publications on the right, like National Review and others. Um, so I absolutely and adamantly assert that corporations have rights. Look, the Cato Institute is technically a corporation. We happen to be a nonprofit, um, but but as an organization, as an institution, um, the Cato Institute also has and needs 
a constitutional right of free speech. But for whatever reason, some conservatives in particular have decided that once a social media company gets big enough, then somehow it loses its First Amendment right, at least some of its First Amendment rights to do things like moderate uh, uh, the content that appears on the site or uh, kick people off um, if they've misbehaved in some way. And I don't agree with that at all. Um, I certainly don't always like what Twitter or Facebook or other social media companies do. I'm very disturbed by the way that the government seems to have jawboned and 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 you know coerced uh, some of those companies into um, uh, censoring certain kinds of speech on the platform. That's a discussion we can have. But if you're the owner of Twitter and you want to say that Donald Trump's not allowed on that site anymore, it's your property. You're allowed to do so. And, and, and again, not all judges have gone to bat for that, but they should. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything going to be all right this morning.